Good morning, church. Sherry and I bring you greetings from the great city of Douglasville. That uh, grand metropolis. For those of you that we haven't met, uh, Sherry and I serve the Lord with Equipping Leaders International. We're uh, training indigenous leaders in India. I'm the India director and uh, travel back and forth. Sherry's a hospice home hospice nurse, so she's here most of the time. She goes with me once a year. And uh, I'm going, well, a total of five times this year to India, about 14 weeks of ministry to train leaders. We, our India team is in front of 500 leaders face-to-face -face who, uh, from five ministries, and they represent about 20,000 leaders. So the, the, the gospel's exploding in South Asia. And uh, we're just excited that the Lord would uh, allow us to be a, a part of that. The first question that anybody asks me when I show up is, when am I leaving? <laughs> so I've already been asked that here today. I walk in, somebody shakes my hand, and they say, when are you leaving? And so if I didn't know better, I would get a complex. I'm, I'm leaving on July 8th. It's a week from Friday, so I'll be in India for two weeks with a couple from Pennsylvania, and we're going to be doing a series of marriage conferences. So you can remember to pray for us, specifically for the leaders we're training, these couples that have patriarchal and tradi very traditional Indian marriages where the, the, um, the wife, in many cases, is no better than a servant, and uh, it's not unusual for husbands to beat their wives even in the church. So pray for us and pray that the gospel would have a profound impact. This morning, we're in Philippians chapter 1. We just have a few verses I want to go over with you this morning. Philippians 1, verse 12. Hear the word of God. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Thus ends a reading of God's word. May he bless it to our edification and his glory. I, I, I don't know if you've heard this story. There was, a, there was a, a, a farmer who started looking at his farm with critical eyes. He lived out uh, a little past Rootful. That's Alabama, right? If, well, in Douglasville, anything west of Bremen, we just count as across the line. So, so he was just a little west of Rootville, and he'd been farming that land for some time, and he just felt like something was wrong. He was really tired of the land and tired of the place, and so he decided to just sell out and move somewhere else. And so he hired a realtor who came out to look the farm over and to prepare an ad for the for the uh, West Georgia paper. And, 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 but before turning in the ad to the paper, the realtor wanted to go over the ad with the farmer. So she called the farmer and read the ad to him. And she said, see if this meets with your approval. And so the ad spoke of a, a great location, a, a well-maintained and beautiful house, sturdy barns, lush pasture lands, a beautiful pond, fertile soil, and a great view. And so the farmer listened very carefully, and he said, would you read that again to me very slowly? And she says, for sale, a great farm, a good location, a well-maintained house, sturdy barns, lust pastures, a beautiful 
a beautiful pond, fertile soil, and a great view. And the pastor listened and he said, don't put that ad in the paper. I've always wanted to live somewhere just like that. I think I'll just stay right where I am. You know, as we live, we're constantly making assessments about our life situation and what we think are, are good values, what we think is important, and, uh, and how we evaluate our life depends on how we view things. And we're constantly making those cost-value assessments. Here's an example. In our culture, it is against our values to eat each other. Now, you knew that, right? So guess what? You hardly ever see it. It's part of our worldview not to eat each other, so we don't. But, you know, that's an easy one. What, how do you view things like suffering and the obstacles in your life? What about uh, suffering uh, with sickness or illness, the struggles that you face, certain obstacles? How, how do we as Christians respond biblically and faithfully to those kind of issues that are not so easy? Well, some respond by saying, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a great question. Others say, I'm a sinner, so I deserve all the bad things that I get. So just like the farmer, how we answer these questions is all about perspective. And beloved, we want to have a biblical perspective in how we answer these things. And the Apostle Paul certainly had a, a a Christ-centered worldview and how he viewed his own struggles. And we just saw that in the verses we read. And we're going to flesh that out this morning. And as all sermons have three good points, so this one has three points as well. So the first is gospel circumstances. Now, I love being around new Christians, especially ones who have who have run from Christ for a long time. Maybe they were raised in the church and they rebelled, or maybe they've just had a hard life and been away from the church. And, and they're still, so, but then now they've finally come to faith and they're still so rough around the edges. Their life is messy, but they have infectious joy. They're just happy to know Jesus. And, and I also love hanging around with religious folks who've been in the church a long time and after years of striving in a moralistic church and trying to get better and failing at it, they, they finally found grace and, and they're learning to rest in Jesus and, and nobody's judging them anymore. It's, it, it's, like, it's like watching kids whose every day is Christmas. They have such joy. So Philippians is called the epistle, the letter of joy. And what makes this letter so glorious is that Paul wrote about joy while he was in the midst of suffering. It's incredible, really, because those brand new Christians, those those, those who are new to grace and have been stuck in a moral worldview, the, the truth is, for both sets of those people, their life is just around the corner for some fresh obstacles to joy. That infectious thing doesn't last very long before some real obstacles come to your life. Because you don't have to be a Christian too long before you run into struggle. Now, usually, that struggle is internal. 
your disappointment with yourself, overwhelming guilt when you feel like you've missed it. And sometimes that struggle is with your family or, or your friends who think you're crazy for your newfound zeal in, in Christ. Other times that struggle comes from within the church. You know, you get this many people together and, and somebody's bound to hurt your feelings at some point and it's not just somebody else hurting your feelings, you're going to hurt theirs as well and you're going to wonder whether it's all worth it. Or, or it could be your circumstances. Maybe you're, you're struggling at work or, or you're not able to pay your bills or, or you're having real money problems or, or maybe, maybe like us, you drive old cars and you pray for them regularly. Or, or yeah, we do. Or maybe it's your kids. We have five grown kids, and any of you who have teenagers think that that's stressful? No, that's easy. Grown kids don't have to do anything you say because they pay their own bills, and you got no leverage. So, or, or maybe it could be your health is deteriorating. Well, whatever's happening in your life, you're experiencing some form of struggle, and it's not just seldom. There's a lot that's hard. Living in a fallen world is like running around on a car with flat tires. It's really bumpy, and things don't go where they're supposed to go. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was under house arrest in Rome. Now, he was there for two years, and this loving church in Philippi that he's writing to was concerned about his welfare. In fact, they were one of the few churches that really supported him in ministry and followed him emotionally wherever he went. So one of the reasons he wrote this letter was to assure them that he was okay, that everything was all right, and that their prayers were being answered on his behalf. And, and he, so in this letter, he's already in chapter one, he's given thanks for them, and he's prayed for them. And now in verse 12, he turns to the problems he faces, problems that they're aware of and concerned for. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has happened to serve to advance the gospel. Paul saw that all of his obstacles, all of his struggles, all of his pain, he saw it through one lens. And that is that they were there by the sovereign hand of God to advance the gospel. Now, is that how you see your life, beloved? That your struggles the obstacles you face, that the things that you happen to you are there by the sovereign hand of God to advance the gospel. That's what we're talking about when we mention the sovereignty of God. You know, in the Presbyterian church, we get hung up on God's sovereignty and we always want to talk about the doctrine of election. Which comes first, regeneration or faith? But the real issue, see, in God's sovereignty the real issue is whether our life in Christ has any purpose. And do our negative circumstances have any meaning? Is, is God really working his purposes out for his own eternal glory through my, my circumstances as well? Does he keep his promise that all things work out for good for those who are loved and called by him? When Jesus offers us the abundant life, does it include suffering or has he stepped off his throne for a few days or, or a few months or even a few years? So, so to answer that question, consider the life of Paul for a moment. Now, Paul's under house arrest in Rome. Before that, he spent two years in prison in Caesarea, in Palestine. And it all started 
when Paul went back to Jerusalem, and you'll find that story in Acts 21, he, he was falsely accused of law-breaking, and, and he was nearly lynched by a religious mob, and he ended up in a Roman prison. In fact, there was a group that had taken a vow that they wouldn't eat until they killed him. And, and by God's providence, he was saved. And even though he was in the right, and he was being treated unjustly, he could not get a hearing to change things. He was insulted. He was maliciously misrepresented and lied about. He was kept in prison simply so that the ruler could gain favor with the people. And then when the next ruler came along, he was kept in prison hoping that he would give a large bribe. And then, when he finally appealed to Caesar and went to Rome, on his way from Caesarea to Rome, he was shipwrecked, and his life hung in the balance in the sea. And when he finally got to Rome, it was not with fanfare and trumpets. He, he arrived instead with the condemned. It was, a, it was a prison ship, and he was bound in chains. And he spent two years there under house arrest, constantly chained to a Roman guard, a member of the elite palace guard. And he slept with those men. Well, I'm sure he even used the bathroom with those men. He was never alone, probably not even once. And what was his crime to receive all this struggle and this obstacle to what he wanted to do, which is to be out preaching. His crime was faithfulness to the gospel. Why did he go to Jerusalem in the first place? Well, Paul went because the Holy Spirit sent him there to advance the gospel. And what's incredible to me is that he knew because he was receiving warnings in every city from the Lord that he was going into the lion's den and it would not go well and he did it willingly because the Lord was telling him to go. He, even the Daniel, our hero in the Old Testament, was made to go into the lion's den. Paul chose to go. And Paul went because the Holy Spirit sent him. He even told his Ephesian friends that he would probably never see them again. And they wept together as brothers over their friendship and over their parting. So, beloved, are you like the farmer, looking with disappointment at your life, at all your failures, at your hurts, at your struggles, and wondering why God has let you down or led you into this mess? Or are you like the real estate agent, looking at the lush pastures and seeing the ample barns that God has built in your life through the process of struggling? After all that he had been through, Paul said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And unless you think he's just selling and trying to be hyperbolic and, and, and over-encouraging, he gives two solid examples of how God has advanced the gospel through his imprisonment. One is outside the church and one is inside the church. And so the first is outside. That's my second point this morning. It's gospel expansion. Look at verse 13. He says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. His chains were somewhat longer than modern handcuffs, about 18 inches, about a cubit. 
One end was on his wrist, and one end was on the other, uh, the other end was on the wrist of the guard. So it made escape and privacy impossible. He was chained day and night. And yet he was also allowed to live in private quarters for two years. That was a great blessing. And I, I'm sure the rotation of the guards who watched over him included several diff, dozen different soldiers over those two years. Now, when Paul first arrived in Rome, he called for the leaders of the synagogue to come and discuss the gospel with him. The guards were there. Over his time in prison, he had several helpers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are to name just a couple of the many who helped him. And their job was to bring him books and to bring him regular audiences from people in the city to teach and preach the gospel. Meanwhile, the guards were there. And the guards saw everything and heard every word. Over time, they would have known the facts of the gospel very well. They would have heard it again and again. They would have learned that Paul was falsely accused and in chains for the sake of the gospel. And in addition, they would have been attracted by his great love for the lost and, and his compassion for the sheep and his great knowledge of the scriptures. They would have experienced firsthand his graciousness and, and his patience and, and his wisdom and his deep convictions and his genuineness and his hospitality and his humility. They would have seen his perseverance and affliction and his deep love for Christ. And they would have also known of his great love for them. And they would have listened to him pray. And they would have heard him pray for the Philippians for abounding love. And they would have heard him pray for the Ephesians that they might know love. And for the Thessalonians that they, they might persevere. I imagine that many of these guards came to faith and prayed with him together even. And they would have learned the gospel and maybe even become leaders in their local church and their cups would have overflowed into the lives of all those working in the palace guard. And they would have discussed it with their wives and their companions and with all those living in the palace itself. They would have talked about this strange little man from from Palestine, who talks about a Savior named Jesus who is risen from the dead. And many came to faith. We'll turn over in your Bible to chapter 4 and look at there. Right at the end of this book, right in verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, how did those folks get there? Well, it's because of Paul's influence. Paul's influence, imagine the influence on the whole empire. It would be like a modern-day Paul being under house arrest near the White House, maybe in the executive office building. And, and his guards are all secret service, and the rotating guards, guards would hear the gospel and talk about among their friends and companions and co-workers and Many would be saved, and the talk would spread into the White House, perhaps even to the Oval Office. They would have been talking about this little man in the building next door who talks about Jesus. Imagine the large influence of one man or one woman committed to the gospel. The proverb says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
And that's what Paul is talking about. His imprisonment in Rome gave him access to people he could never have discussed the gospel with. It expanded the gospel in a way that would have never been possible without his trial. And, and who is it that the Lord has placed near you? That's the question. Who is it in your life that the Lord has placed you near, who has placed near you, which gives you unique access to discuss the gospel and the goodness of grace? It's true in everybody's life that the Lord has uniquely placed somebody in your life that you're the one. You're the one that the Lord wants them to share, wants to share the gospel with them. And Paul's story, it, it reminds me of another great preacher in jail, and, and there have been many. We see this even in India. Uh, his name is John Bunyan. Maybe you've heard of him. He, he was a popular and powerful preacher in England in the 1600s. Like the Jews in Jerusalem hated Paul and had him arrested, so the leaders of the Church of England, remember I told you some affliction comes from inside. The leaders of the Church of England hated Bunyan because he was an independent. And so they had him arrested in order to silence him in his preaching. And the irony of all that is that it gave him a much larger audience he was no longer had to sneak around to small churches preaching to just a handful of people at a time to avoid arrest. Now he's arrested. So now he preaches boldly to his fellow prisoners and to the hundreds of citizens of the little town called Bedford, England, and the surrounding area that came and stood outside the jail to hear him preach and teach the gospel. They would simply stand outside the jail and listen. And he was warned. And he was conjoled, and he was punished, and he was brought before tribunals in order to stop him. They even at one point offered him his liberty if he would cease preaching and going back to being a blacksmith. See, he wasn't even a pastor. He was a blacksmith. And, and they offered him his liberty if he would stop preaching and go back to being a smithy. And his response was, if you let me out today... I will preach again tomorrow. The Apostle Paul said, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. You see, Bunyan was committed in the same way to the word of God. So Bunyan was silenced verbally, and, and they put him in the deepest and darkest places of the jail where people couldn't hear him, down in the dungeons. And it was there that he had time to think and to write. And all he had with him was the Bible and Fox's Book of Mar Martyrs. Now those are great companions. And so he was in jail for 12 years. And he wrote many pamphlets and books. And the most famous is Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure you've heard of it. Probably many of you have read it. Millions have read that book and came to faith. And many more millions have read it and been cheered by the incredible grace of the gospel as they see the deep work of Christ to release us from our own self-righteousness. And the great preacher Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century in England, he read that book every year just to be encouraged and refreshed by the gospel. You see, you see beloved, our adversary, the accuser, the dark one, he, he stalks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But you see, he has no power over you. He has no power over me. God is at work 
in the life of his children, perfecting each one of us for his service so that even our trials are measured out in order to bring fame to the name of Jesus and to build us and make us into the image of Christ. Even the trials of Job advance the gospel. Now, how many people have heard the preaching of John the ba- Bunyan, John Bunyan, because of his 12 years in prison? Well, only a few hundred would have heard him if he'd been left out of jail. But because he went to jail for 12 years, countless millions have heard the gospel as a result. And that leads me to the third thing I wanted to show you, and that's inside the church, gospel encouragement. That's verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, a Christian in the days of the Roman Empire and the days of the apostles faced many obstacles and often persecution, either from the unbelieving Jews or from the Romans, and often from both the synagogue of Satan as John the Apostle calls it. It's very similar to our friends in India who day and night are facing opposition from the radical Hindu government and what are called the RSS, which is the the brown shirts of the Hindu party so that politicians can persecute without actually being the man in the street doing it. So the reigning emotion in the early church was fear. I see that fear in India, fear of persecution, Fear of being shut out from the marketplace. Fear for family, for wife, for children. Fear of arrest. Fear of death. Now it sounds strange, but Paul's boldness and courage in the face of death, in the midst of arrest and chains, his courage gave courage to others. Because you see, courage is infectious. And courage is not the lack of fear. It's being faithful even though you are afraid. God says, don't fear the one who can only kill you. Fear the one who holds control over your eternal life. You see, only a a fool is fearless. All of us experience fear. Courage is faithfulness even though you are afraid. And you see, Paul knew because of the promises of God that his chains were for Christ, that the suffering of Christians advances the gospel. In fact, the, the church grows faster under mild persecution, and it often diminishes in prosperity. And, and Paul knew that the church needed encouragement in the midst of trial, and his chains encouraged them. His chains encourage me. His chains encourage my friends in India. Because you see, the worst that can happen to you is that you would die, that someone would kill you. And then you'll be with Jesus. Paul's boldness gave courage to the brothers. Now, while Paul was in prison, he wrote four books of the Bible that we have. He wrote much more than that, but we have four of those books. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And some of his great illustrations that give us courage are based on the soldiers that he saw every day. I love the armor of God passage that he finishes the book of Ephesians with. 
as he relates that to God's armor himself, pulling that reference out of Isaiah. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and let me show you something there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the church, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, Paul knew that as an apostle, everything that happened to him was for the good of the church and for the sake of the gospel. But he also knew that he was not alone in this privilege. He knew that everything that happens to any of God's children serves the sovereign advancement of God's kingdom, his work in your life to make you in the image of Christ. And, and, and he invites us to join him in that perspective and that hope. Now that's really amazing. Paul invites Timothy and he invites us to suffer with him for the cause of the gospel. And not just Timothy, but us as well. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have ourselves have received from God. Some of the suffering you're experiencing in your life has been given to you so that you can experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit and then give that comfort to other people who are in the same trouble. That's what we mean by the advancement of the gospel. You don't have to be a preacher. He says, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So the obstacles in our life are there for a purpose. God is working his purposes out in each one of us. For the good of his kingdom, for the fame of the name of Jesus, and for your sanctification as he makes you in the image of his own dear son. Now what an incredible promise this is. That it's all working out that the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives so that his comfort will overflow into the lives of others. Now that's the advancement of the gospel. Even your struggles have purpose. Now that is so good. But there is bad news in the midst of the good. Here's the bad news. The bad news is, is if you constantly question the obstacles and the hardships in your life, if always at the forefront of your mind is how much God is letting you down, then you're going to continue to live in discouragement and you'll continue to ask those questions and struggle will breed struggle, will breed discouragement. 
And, and for some people, that hardship will lead to the practical denial of God's grace and love. Giving up on God. Now that's bad. Paul says, if we deny him, he will deny you. But there is good news, beloved. It's incredible good news. Paul says, if we are faithless, then God is still faithful. Now, isn't that amazing? Even though I'm churning with doubts and questioning his goodness and wondering about his love, he doesn't let go of me. You know, my, my granddaughter lives in our basement. She's two and a half. She's at that age where she, well, she wants to be hugged sometimes, but she wants to do stuff on her own. And when you pick her up and mess around with her, she thinks she's holding on to you, but really it's you holding on to her, right? That's the reason she doesn't fall. The gospel's the same way. God doesn't let go. Even when we're faithless, he's still faithful to the promises that he has made to Christ at the cross. That the outworking of the cross and the resurrection is that God holds on so that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. That's really good. He holds on when I have no strength to hold on. That's why we don't deny him, because even when it's hard, he's still holding on. You see, Jesus, he died on the cross for our sins, even the sin of doubting his goodness. And he rose from the dead to give us new life, a life with this promise that everything that happens to me serves as an advancement for the gospel and the fame of the name of Jesus. A life where his faithfulness turns my faithlessness into fruitful gospel living. So I invite you this morning to put your trust in him. Maybe for some of you, it's for the first time as you're considering the goodness of God to hold on even in struggle. Maybe for some of you, you need to renew your trust in him because he's a God who keeps his promises and he takes care of you even when it's hard. You know, Paul suffered greatly for the gospel, more than you and I ever will, perhaps. Yet he, he never lost hope. He never denied God. And you know why? Because he never lost sight of the heavenly vision. As a persecutor of the church, on the road to Damascus, Paul met the risen and reigning Christ, and he was changed. And instead of murderer of Christians, he became God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the whole empire, and yet God at the same time showed him how much he would suffer for the name. And Paul never lost sight of that calling. Now, was it easy? No, it was never easy. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was never easy, but it was good. 
11 years ago, I was dying in my bed. 2005, I thought I had the flu. I had a hole in my colon and I was leaking. And I stayed home for two weeks until when I got to the doctor for the third time, he immediately panicked. His face was gray and he sent me right to the ER where I found out I had an abscess and when they drained it the next day, it would have filled a, a cup this large. And, and they cut me from here to here. And I had so many lesions in there that they had to pull my whole small intestine out on my belly and clean it up and stuff it all back in there. I'd like to say that most of this is a result of the, sur the surgery, <laughs> but it's probably because I enjoy the white things too much like bread and sugar. You know, on top of that, when I got out of surgery, I found out that I had an ostomy bag hanging right there, the scars right there above my belt line. And that's a trick. Where does your belt go, above it or below it? And uh, it was a good thing it was on this side, not this side. This is liquid. This is solid. So every three hours around the clock, I had to empty that thing, and, and that's how I went to the bathroom. And I can remember... About eight weeks into the, into the having the bag that I was praying one day and filled with God's grace, I prayed, okay, Lord, I don't want this thing, but if this would serve the fame of the name of Jesus, that I would have this permanently that I'm in. And eight weeks later, the surgery is done to reverse it. So now all I have is a scar and then a second one from a hernia there. You know, it was a hard time. It was hard six weeks. Couldn't work. Spent six weeks at home recovering with my wife. That was a precious gift from Jesus. And here I am, 11 years later, flying back and forth to India, training what amounts to 20,000 pastors. You see, beloved, the pastures are lush, and the barn is full. And the pond is teeming with fish. And the view, well, you see, the view is incredible. And, and the Father has invited us to eat in his big old house. So, you see, I want you to know that what happened to me, that what is happening to you has really served to advance the gospel and bring fame to the name of Jesus. So will you believe it? I hope so, because you see that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word once again, shining the light on the Apostle Paul and his hardships has helped us see this morning, Lord, how faithful you are to your beloved in the midst of a sinful world where we run around on four flat tires and life is hard, but life is good. So we thank you, Lord. We'll thank you with joy this morning for the troubles and the struggles that we experience because we know what you're doing is that you're making us in the image of Jesus. You see inside of us a sculpture that looks exactly like the Savior and you are gradually knocking off the parts that don't look like Jesus. 
And for that, we give great thanksgiving. And we praise you that in the midst of us, in the midst of that is not just about us individually, but it's really for the growing fame of Christ who can take even such as us and make a masterpiece. We pray that our faith would be encouraged and that our hope would be real and that you would grow us in the image of Christ. And we pray it in his name and all God's people said, amen. amen.